Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIConf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I sat down with Nick Pentry, Principal Engineer at IBM and someone I've known for many years. In fact, I sat down with him many, many years ago in maybe the second ever uh, Spark Summit in San Francisco, and uh, we did an on-camera interview. Nick was an early and avid user of Apache Spark and became a Spark committer and PMC member. Most recently, his focus has been on machine learning, particularly deep learning, and he is part of a group within IBM focused on building open source tools that enable end-to-end machine learning pipelines. So our conversation will take a tour through some of the open source projects that Nick is involved with in terms of uh, spreading the word about these projects and uh, evangelizing on their behalf. So a quick reminder, Nick will be speaking at the Strata Data Conference in New York on uh, deploying end-to-end deep learning pipelines with Onex. Also want to give a shout out to a brand new tutorial that we will be having at the AI conference in San Jose in September. It will be taught by Neil Conway and Yuav Zimmerman of Determined AI, and they will be giving a three-hour tutorial entitled Modern Deep Learning Tools and Techniques. I've seen the outline. I've seen early versions. That should be a great tutorial. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Nick Pentrit. Principal Engineer at the Center for Open Source and AI Technologies at IBM. Welcome to the Data Show. Hi, Ben. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. So I don't know if you remember, but we actually first met in person, I believe, at the first Spark Summit in San Francisco years ago when uh, I was tasked to interview people on site and I grabbed you. Uh, yes, that, I do vi- that, that video might still be around. Actually, I'm going to try to dig it up and link it to the episode notes of this podcast. But basically, at that point, Nick, you had a startup called Graphflow, and Graphflow happened to be one of the early users of Spark. So describe how you discovered Spark and uh, Graphflow. Yeah, uh, thanks very much. Yeah, I, I do re- definitely remember that uh, video interview. And I think it was back in, in 2014, if I'm not mistaken. At that point, as you say, I was uh, running a, a small startup called Graphflow, actually based out of Cape Town, where I live, but focused on on actually international customers, predominantly in the in the kind of online retail space, as well as social networks, mo- mobile video, mo- mobile apps. Um, and Graphflow was a, a recommendation engine as a service. Uh, so we built out an, a set of APIs where our customers could post uh, usage data for their you know, online store, for example, and we would crunch the numbers in the background, uh, do the analytics and the machine learning model building, uh, and serve them back both uh, analytics dashboards and analytics APIs, as well as uh, recommendation APIs. So you could get you know similar products, for example, Amazon-style recommendations, people who viewed this product also viewed this, user you know, targeted user recommendations uh, inserted into email, uh, all of that kind of thing. So in the early days of Graphflow, building out the back end, that was when I I had recently come across Spark. That would have been the, you know, kind of the end of 2012, in fact, beginning of 2013. 
And at that point, Spark was not even an Apache project. It was still a, an open source project out of UC Berkeley. And you know, I, I still remember the first time playing around with the early versions and, and working with the Scala APIs. You know, it was just really exciting because it, it made what was uh, what used to be pretty you know, difficult working with uh, custom Hadoop MapReduce jobs. It made all of that uh, that workflow super simple and, and, and feel really elegant. So I was excited about the technology and I wanted to, to build our, our backend systems on that. And so that's exactly what we did. And, and you know, I'm proud to say at this point that Graphflow is still one of the, uh, was one of the earlier commercial use cases of, of Spark out in the wild, actually building production systems. So at the time of that Spark Summit, uh, we were, I think, running around you know, version 0.8. Uh, I think when we first developed the, the backend was version 0.5. And you know, the company and, and, and my experience with Spark grew from those early days through to the Apache incubator, top-level Apache project, and then and now to, you know, to my role at IBM. And uh, for listeners out there, uh, Nick is a Spark committer. Actually, as you were describing that, I realized I actually also jumped onto Spark around version 0.5, something like that. And uh, there were already some examples in the documentation. I don't know if you remember this, of some simple machine learning things like clustering, page rank. But it was just, to me, it was, well, the ease of use was there, obviously, compared to uh, uh, MapReduce. But to me, it was mostly because it was in-memory and fast. That was what I liked about it. Yes. Yeah, it was definitely a lot quicker to do things. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of folks may not remember, but back then it really was a, a case of having to, you know, hand write uh, Java MapReduce code for, for the most part, or potentially Hive queries. <laughs> so compared to either of those, um, working with, with Spark in memory, uh, at using the, the Elegant APIs, um, just made life much, much simpler. But as you point out, there were maybe a couple of examples, but no actual built-in machine learning libraries. So all of that had to be custom built by me uh, back in uh, at that point for the company, uh, for the startup. So it was great experience and provided you know, early hands-on you know, exposure to Spark. And, and as you mentioned, Ben, that, you know, I was very fortunate to be involved in those early days and, and be one of the um, committee and PMC members of the of the Apache project when it was when it was uh, donated to the uh, to the uh, Apache Software Foundation. So then, at some point, you made your way into IBM. So how did that come about? Uh, so I've been with with IBM and the Code A team for about three years. When I joined, it was uh, known as the Spark Technology Center. So as the name says, it was a team formed within IBM to focus on the Apache Spark project out in open source. Everything we did was in the open source community, uh, working with the community and contributors out there, and effectively trying to you know, add value to to the Spark project and community, drive enterprise adoption, and you know, ultimately into IBM's products and, and customers. I was there at the Spark Summit when this uh, Spark Technology Center was announced, and I, th- I believe I even interviewed the VP in charge at that time. But anyway, it was a big deal. Yeah, and it, it was a big commitment made by IBM, and both in terms of uh, resources, uh, you know, people resources and, and developers, as well as um, you know, budget. And yeah, I'm, I was very fortunate to be part of this team. And of course, you know, at that point, building out a, a team focused on Apache Spark required people with expertise and, and you know, committers and so on. So yeah, yeah I, was, I was very fortunate to be able to join the team and in the you know in the early days of being part of SDC at that point, most of the team was focused on uh, on the Apache Spark ecosystem, with, obviously with a heavy focus on data science and, and machine learning, uh, and that was mostly what I worked on. 
And since then, the team has, uh, has certainly expanded its focus. So it, Spark is still a key part of, of what the team does. But as the market has, you know, has rapidly moved into, uh, into this phase of um, data science, machine learning, AI, deep learning, so our team being in the open source data space has um, has followed those movements. So the team now is focused uh, across the Python data science stack, a little bit of R, the deep learning frameworks. And more recently, we have been serving as a, a kind of conduit between the IBM product teams, IBM research, and the open source community. So trying to take some of the, you know, the interesting and kind of cutting edge IBM research projects in the in the data science, AI uh, infrastructure, and trusted AI space, and bring them uh, in collaboration with with product teams into the open source community. And, and in keeping with that updated mission, we rebranded and renamed the Spark Technology Center into the Center for Open Source Data and AI Technologies, or CODE. Uh, so it's the head, the main office is still based in in San Francisco. A few team members around the world, including me, and we're we're up to um, around forty open source developers at the moment, uh, focused on all of these different foundational open source projects. And uh, as you mentioned, the center is also in collaboration with the rest of IBM is starting to push out some interesting open source technologies. And you recently gave a uh, talk at Strata London in early May entitled Building a Secure and Transparent Machine Learning Pipeline Using Open Source Technologies, where you mentioned several of these projects. And by the way, for our listeners out there, I'm going to try to bring Nick back to London in October for our AI conference in London. So we are still discussing how that will come about. So stay tuned. But anyway, so Nick, on to these projects. The first one is something called AI Fairness 360. So what what is this project? Yeah, thanks Ben for for mentioning these. Um, and and you know, it was it was a, a pleasure and an honor to be in London for for Strata uh, once again. So I'm glad uh, that I that I was able to be there. So a few of the projects that that, that you mentioned um, are part of the Code A set of projects which encompass the end-to-end enterprise AI lifecycle, and that goes from you know, the, the data preparation phase all the way through to to training machine learning and deep learning models, you know, at, in a scalable and framework agnostic manner through to, to being able to, to serve those models as well as discover state-of-the-art models um, and deploy them. And then thinking about the recent trend in kind of trusted and secure AI, we have a couple of projects that are in that space. Or as I put it, uh, I, I've been trying, Nick, I've been trying to collect a bunch of these topics around the, around the umbrella managing risk in ML. And I think that, yeah, I, I think that's a great, uh, a great way of putting it, a great umbrella. And that's exactly exactly it. You know, we have the, a few of these risks that are recently be hi- highlighted. For example, bias, uh, you know, bias potential models, the the need for explainability, the need for uh, adversarial robustness, and AI Fairness 360, as well as our adversarial robustness toolbox, are two projects that that look to uh, to help address these challenges. So AI Fairness 360, or uh, AIF360 uh, for short, is an open source project out of IBM Research, um, and now you know, jointly managed with the Code A team and, and research team that seeks to help drive forward bias research and bias mitigation uh, in, in machine learning models. So it's a Python uh, toolkit uh, framework. So it's, uh, it's available on GitHub. It is, it's actually agnostic to, uh, to the underlying machine learning framework. So you, you, know, you could use it with scikit-learn, you could use it with uh, deep learning frameworks. And it is a, at core, a collection of bias metrics that you can run on a particular model. 
to investigate whether that model is biased to certain kind of subpopulations or sensitive variables that are in the data set, as well as some bias explanation techniques and importantly, ways to actually mitigate that bias. So is this kind of, uh, so it's the vision of AIF 360 more of kind of a, during the training phase, kind of offline, or is there like a real-time monitoring component to it? At the moment, it, it serves as a, as a core uh, kind of framework or toolkit. Um, and the idea here is that bias, ultimately, bias in machine learning models comes from the data, right? Uh, the, the fact that a prediction may, may have a, a low accuracy for a given uh, subset of the population uh, really is coming from the fact that the data itself is, is skewed. And the way that shows up is in metrics, you know, the differential metrics. The way to mitigate those can come from a couple of different places. It can be done at the data level or it can be done at the model level. So, you know, there are ways to mitigate that bias from, from the perspective of rebalancing or reweighting the data, for example, or, or actually doing it at runtime based on the model predictions. So the vision of the, of the tool is to address all of these scenarios. One, it, it doesn't necessarily create uh, or, or offer a, um, a monitoring framework, for example, but it could be included in a monitoring framework. At some point, yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the challenges, I think, in this topic is that there's no clear-cut way of doing all of this 100% of the time. You, you know what I mean? So it's kind of like uh, you still it's a case-by-case. Case. You still need to interrogate the data. You need some kind of domain knowledge. And so I think these tools are going to be very useful for people at the front lines of uh, deploying some of these things. But I don't know how you feel, but I don't think there, I think at the end of the day, people still need to get in there and really uh, understand uh, the problem and the data. There's, it's ethics, but after all, you know what I mean? There's still human judgment involved. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the, these metrics and mitigation techniques are exactly that. They are techniques, they're algorithms. They can certainly not, uh, not simply be applied. They're guides for data scientists and the domain experts, right? Precisely. But they do provide a, a very useful um, you know, framework for, for evaluating the existence of, of bias, the severity, and, and for, for applying mitigation techniques. Uh, of course, as, with, as, you, as you say, with any toolkit uh, or set of tools, it needs to be applied with domain knowledge and with expertise. But you know, the, the, what's nice about uh, AI, AIF360, for example, and, and on the GitHub uh, repo, there, there should be a, a link to the demo. But these tools and these metrics lend themselves to very nice data visualizations. So it's very kind of easy to see what is the impact of mitigation techniques, how the bias levels are reduced, and so on. Um, and they've got a very nice online demo. Which is which is worth checking out. And then the other challenge, of course, with this area is that there's actually a temporal dimension as well. So sometimes the actual uh, negative effects may be down the road, as a paper in from UC Berkeley pointed out. But uh, so now let's describe this kind of uh, companion open source project, which is this adversarial robustness toolbox. Uh, yeah, thanks, Ben. So the the uh, adversarial robustness toolbox or ART. Uh, is is very similar in in concept to AIF 360. Again, coming out of IBM research and with a focus uh, for this project on uh, detecting adversarial attacks and being able to mitigate adversarial attacks. For any listeners that may not be familiar with you know, adversarial um, examples in, in machine learning, uh, the idea is that you know a, a machine learning model is trained on a set of data, and the classic example of adversarial scenarios is in image classification. So, for example, you know, a, a deep learning model may be trained to classify you know animals or other things like that, and 
it turns out that taking the input data, uh, that image of um, you know a, a, a panda bear, for example, and applying a very small perturbation, some noise to that image, you can actually completely fool the, the model into thinking that that is something completely different, for example, a, a gibbon or, a, or an ambulance, right? And to a human eye, this is imperceptible. So if a human looks at this image, we would never be fooled. We know exactly what it is. It's still a panda, but the, the model is, is effectively very, very sensitive um, to these small changes. And that kind of corruption of, of the input can happen naturally in, in, in some scenarios you know, uh, by mistake, but it can also happen um, through bad actors. Uh, and if an adversary actually uh, knows what they're doing and is intending to create harm, they could inject these kind of attacks into a model. So much the same way as, um, as in computer security, cybersecurity, you, know, you, you have the ability of hackers to, to try and do nefarious things willfully. Uh, the, the same concept applies potentially to machine learning models. So this is, a, this is actually not just a theoretical issue. Um, you know, another classic example is through fairly small perturbations and, and noise applied to street signs, you can fool a model into thinking that a stop sign is actually a, a speed limit sign. Uh, and one can imagine you know, in a self-driving car, for example, that can have significantly negative impacts from a, uh, from a, you know, a human life perspective. Nick, in terms of from a user point of view, so I train a computer vision model, I have training data. Uh, so how does art fit into my workflow? So art uh, has a, a few different components. Um, it has a set of, of actual adversarial attacks. So it does have the, the attack tools. So which, which in this context would be, I'm training a computer vision model with my labeled training data. So art would go in and kind of perturb my training data? Uh, so the, the attacks themselves are typically on the, the train model itself. Okay. So exactly. once you've trained that model, you could apply an attack. Um, I see. For example, perturbing, perturbing the, let's say, validation set. In that way, you can actually measure what is the impact of these attacks. So this is more intended for education purposes and to illustrate the latest research. But then at least if you apply this attack from art on your validation set, you'll go, oh, I'm not going to deploy this. This model is not robust enough to deploy. Yeah. The, the first step is, is effectively detection. So uh, applying the attacks and as well as metrics, so there are robustness metrics, one of which uh, is a state-of-the-art metric called Clever, which comes out of IBM Research also. There's a few others that also are from the kind of latest research papers. And these are, um, these are effectively a, a metric or an index that represent how robust the model is to various adversarial attacks. So the first step is being able to try attacks to see how they work and get an understanding, apply the metrics to kind of evaluate robustness. And then the third uh, is to actually be able to mitigate them. So there are a couple of state-of-the-art mitigation techniques for various attacks that are coming out of the research community, and many of them uh, are implemented in art. And then the, the framework allows you, you know, to then uh, actually apply a mitigation technique. Um, again, they've got a very nice um, uh, visual demo online. So you know the, the link should be on the GitHub for adversarial robustness toolbox. And that allows you to play with a few input images and a few different types of adversarial attack and defense with different strengths and parameters and really get a, a, a kind of hands-on feel for how this, this actually works in practice. So let's say I get serious and decide to use both the AI Fairness 360 and the Adversarial Robustness Toolbox. They're both open source. They're both on GitHub. 
But uh, as you know, both of these areas are changing a lot. There's a lot of new research papers and uh, research results coming up. So are the projects on the GitHub pages, uh, are they going to be actively maintained and uh, so that the latest attacks will be reflected? Yeah, absolutely. So they are actively maintained, both of them. And you know, if you go and look at the GitHub your history and the activity, you'll see that the IBM research team members, as well as Coday uh, team members, are are actively adding new algorithms, new metrics. Yeah, you know, and part of the you know, part of the joy of open source, of course, is to bring community involvement. So we would very much be open to uh, to help with contributing to these projects. And and if you know if any practitioners or researchers are out there that would like to contribute, you know, a, a technique or a, or an approach or an algorithm or or a metric, that would be most welcome. So, Nick, at this point, for these two projects, uh, do you know people who are actually using them in uh, production? As far as I know, not off the top of my head. I think there are a few use cases out there. Some of these metrics, in particular for the fairness metrics, are actually part of an IBM service called uh, Watson OpenScale that allows you to monitor machine learning models. In fact, both within IBM Cloud as well as uh, as well as services such as Google and uh, AWS SageMaker and, and others. So these are these fairness metrics as well as explainability and others are actually available to monitor you know your production use cases in that product. So that's one of the key production use cases that I'm aware of. So then uh, the next set of projects that you uh, discussed are more in the area of now starting to productionize or using uh, actual machine learning models that maybe other people have developed. So I'm just going to rattle off all of them and feel free to describe them in whatever order uh, you feel is best. So the first one is called Fabric for Deep Learning, which is a deep learning platform for TensorFlow Cafe PyTorch as a service on Kubernetes. The next one is called the Model Asset Exchange, which is basically a place where developers can find and use deep learning models. And then the last one is called Selden Core, which is machine learning deployment for Kubernetes. So, Nick, any additional insight on these projects? Oh, certainly. So the, the fabric for deep learning and Selden Core that you mentioned, I mean, the, the one common thread there is model training and deployment on Kubernetes. And I think that's something that, that you're seeing um, emerge as a, as a trend in, in the kind of AI ops, model ops space. Um, you know, Kubernetes is obviously very dominant in deployment for software in general, and we're seeing that happen in, in the machine learning space itself. So Fabric for Deep Learning is a, an IBM research project that uh, came in conjunction with the product team, for, in fact, for uh, IBM's cloud deep learning as a service. So as you mentioned, it's a, it's a sort of meta framework, essentially. It runs on top of Kubernetes and allows you to train you know, in any deep learning framework that, that you uh, want to use uh, on a Kubernetes cluster at scale using GPUs and effectively abstracts away the infrastructure and DevOps decisions and allows the data scientist or researcher or, or ML engineer to simply focus on their model training code. And they package that up with a simple configuration uh, YAML file and submit it to the Fiddle cluster and uh, it'll take care of, of training, scaling, um, GPU allocation and all of that stuff that needs to be uh, needs to be done without the data scientists having to worry about how that works. On the deployment side of that spectrum, you know, once you've trained the model, you need a way to deploy it to a framework. And Selden Core is another open source project that that came out of a company um, called Selden in uh, in London. So uh, 
startup that is pretty well known in the in the kind of machine learning space and, and machine learning deployment space. Uh, and they open sourced uh, eventually the core of their system, which is a model deployment framework on Kubernetes. Uh, so again, you know, looking to be framework agnostic and allow you to de- deploy whatever machine learning or deep learning model, whether it's you know TensorFlow, Cafe, PyTorch, H2O, Scikit-Learn, and to do that in a standardized way. So for the people who don't follow these uh, areas uh, very closely, Nick, so how do these two projects relate to Kubeflow? Good question. You know, there are a couple of different projects out there that are starting to emerge doing similar things. So Fiddle, uh, Fabric for Deep Learning, or Fiddle is, is, the, is the abbreviation, uh, is very similar to Kubeflow. They're effectively trying to do much the same uh, same thing and achieve the same goal. Kubeflow is initially started out really as a way of training TensorFlow models on Kubernetes. And, and again, doing that in, in a standardized way that, that handles the resource allocation and you know, GPU scheduling and all the kind of nuts and bolts that you typically have to have to worry about um, without that framework. But it does that in, a, in an extensible way and, and now you know, there's support for PyTorch and other, and other frameworks. I believe that's still kind of in active development. So one aspect is Fiddle currently supports multiple frameworks out the box. Kubeflow is predominantly focused on TensorFlow, but I think has, has pretty good support for PyTorch. Spark is sort of in the background there. Not sure if it's fully working, but it, it, it's kind of in development. Um, Scalar and, and, and others you know, are, are also in development. So at a surface level, they're, they're actually quite similar. Selden is really for the deployment phase. So both Kubeflow and Fiddle are, are focused on training. And once you've got a model, that's kind of where they, they stop. But Selden adds that deployment layer on top. And Selden has an implementation for running on Fiddle or for interfacing with Fiddle once you train your model, as well as for running on Kubeflow. So they're agnostic to actually the underlying the underlying kind of mechanism or meta framework, if you will, that you're using to train your models. So what about uh, this last project, Model Asset Exchange? So the, the last project we uh, work with um, in Codea, it's, um, it's not... Uh, these are not all the projects that, that we focus on, but certainly in the in the machine learning pipeline phases. Uh, Model Asset Exchange is, as you mentioned, a uh, a collection of free and open source deep learning models, state-of-the-art models across various domains. Uh, so you can think of it as a model zoo or a, a model zoo of model zoos, so to speak. But we hope more of a model library in the sense that we're trying to uh, to catalog and bet the model code, the model weights, the intellectual property and licensing terms that are that are assigned to each of those components. That's awesome. So, for example, Nick, uh, last year was a big year for language models. I don't know how up-to-date uh, model asset exchange is, but do you foresee that at some point down the road, one can just go to model asset exchange and figure out uh, or, or just grab one of these language models? Yeah, so uh, language models are, are definitely... Um, really important um, selection of models. We have at the moment a, a few of them. So we have a, a named entity, entity recognition model. Uh, we have some word embedding models. We have some uh, classification models based on, on BERT, which is one of the, you know, the, the kind of cutting edge NLP models um, out there. So clarify, what's the difference between me Going to GitHub and grabbing BERT there, as opposed to uh, as opposed to going to uh, model exchange. Right. So every model on on the exchange, um, to take a step back, we we typically have two types of models, and uh, most of them at the moment are what what we call deployable models. Uh, so we're taking the best of breed model implementations from around 
you know, around the different models used, research organizations, GitHub repos, and so on. And what we're doing is trying to package them up in a, in a, in a more standardized and usable way. So most of this stuff, in fact, all of it is freely available already, but the manner in which it's available can vary quite significantly. So in some cases, you might go along to, um, to a, a GitHub repo from some organization that has trained a, a nice model that you want to use, but the, you know, it's very difficult to actually use that in a, in a production service. So to take it from that state to being able to you know, deploy it into application can be um, a significant amount of work. And that work involves you know, going and double-checking the code. You know, does it do what, what it says on the tin? Is it actually achieving what you need? Going and checking the licensing terms, you know, figuring out how to package that model up into, uh, into a REST API that you can actually use in your application. The version of the library and the dependencies. All of that, exactly. And, and, and in many cases, these models are maybe, um, they might have been around for a little while. They might depend on previous versions of a, of a framework. And, and you, know, you have all of these potential gotchas um, and issues that you come across when you, when you try to, to actually take that model that, into that last mile of production uh, deployment. So with Max, what we've tried to do is, is remove these obstacles and these roadblocks by standardizing the, the framework and mechanisms uh, and the APIs. So each model in Max is you know, fully available, backed by a GitHub repository, where all the, the you have all the code there for for inference and for for the model weights. We package that up as a Docker container. In that Docker container is running a a standardized REST API, and that API exposes in as much as possible a, a standardized inference endpoint where you submit raw data, whether it's an image or a piece of text or NLP model, and you get back uh, the, your predicted result. So we handle, that service handles the pre-processing piece part of the pipeline, the core inference, model inference part, and the post-processing part. Uh, so by doing this in a, in a, you know, in a standardized manner, we were hoping to make it significantly easier to go from, you know, zero to, to actually implementing or using a, a model in a more developer-friendly way. So let's say that I go to a model asset exchange and I determine, oh, this is the right model for me to deploy. But then I realize, oh, but it doesn't quite fit my domain. I may need to retrain it and tune it a little bit for my data. Uh, how does I, how do I go about doing that? Yeah, so, so I think that's a really good question um, and very pertinent, you know, because in mo- many cases, uh, not all, but certainly many cases, that that is probably going to be the scenario. A lot of the time, these models are trained on fairly generic data sets, you know, industry standard data sets, for example, research standard data sets. Um, and often for a particular use case, they do need that, that fine tuning or that training. Up until now, we've been mostly focused on just trying to, to get a sort of sufficiently broad and, and, and deep set of models out that are, that are usable and deployable. Um, and the next phase for is focusing on this, this use case, this scenario, being able to actually train on custom data and making that as easy as possible. Um, and to do that, you know, we're taking much the same approach, which is to, to try and standardize, um, as much, as much as possible. And, you know, if things are a bit, uh, a bit of much the wild west, you know, for deployment of models, that is even more the case for, for the training side. You know, in any given published model on, on GitHub has its own custom way of, you know, running scripts and getting the data in training, all this kind of stuff. So what we're trying to do is, is abstract a little bit of that in a simple way so that we have a single entry point for each model, single way of training on either fiddle the fabric for deep learning or or the Watson, uh, the IBM Watson deep learning as a service on the cloud if you want to manage service um, and, and make it as simple as possible to just drop in your own data and get back a customized model. So that's something that we, we have got a few trainable models currently, but it's something that we're actively working on. And, you know, it, 
it's it's in the pipeline. I, you know, I'm not not exactly sure when we will have that or, or what exact form it's going to take. But that is definitely we recognise that that's where the I think the key value for actually using these these models is, um, and and we want to get that in the hands of developers and data scientists. One last question about the model asset exchange, which is uh, who or is there the equivalent of an editorial board? In other words, who decides what models get into model asset exchange and how often uh, do the models get revisited? Oh, yeah, very good question. You know, at the moment, it is uh, it's our team doing it, the, the Code A team. Uh, you know, so so that, that obviously we have quite a few team members, but we have, you know, there's limits on our resources. We are driven largely by what is happening in the research community. We're just moving fast. <laughs> it's moving fast. So, so well, I, fast, I like... and, fast and not fast, right? So the fast in the sense that the, there's 100 papers a day on archive on machine learning, but, you know, there's probably a few models that really move the needles every year, right? Precisely. And and, and I think you, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head with, with this idea of, of a review board or editorial board. I mean, in a sense, you know, I, I always like to be driven by the, the scikit-learn approach for inclusion of something. You know, so if you want to add a new algorithm to sklearn, for example, there's a, a minimum bar in terms of how widely used is this algorithm, what is the citation history. You know, so, so there's a sort of a resistance, in a sense, to just adding whatever is the latest um, right. and newest, but rather to say, okay, as you mentioned, what, what has moved the needle? What is the, the state of the art? Um, and it's a balance. I mean, as you mentioned, NLP models being very active, something like a BERT, even though it's fairly recent, I think it's critical to be in there, and I don't think anyone would argue about that. Um, but we just don't have capacity, and I don't think any team does, to just you know put in every single model. So in terms of deciding what goes in there at the moment, it, it's up to us. Absolutely, this is an open source project. The, the core of the website sits on our IBM developer you know, website, uh, where you can go and, go and look at the model pages. But everything behind that, all the code, all the containers, everything, all the weights, everything is open source. So over time, we, we and, and already we would love to, uh, to have contributions from the community, um, suggestions for how to, you know, for, for new models that, that could be added, new use cases. And over time, it, we'd definitely love to think about ways to make this more open, you know, even to the point of having some open way of, of uh, reviewing and deciding how these models get in there. That's just, you know, an interesting idea at the moment. You know, it's, it's not something on the roadmap, but certainly that that is where uh, I think it would be very interesting to see this, this project go. As you can tell, I'm very excited about the model asset exchange. <laughs> I mean, we are, you know, we're excited about it too. And the entire team loves working on, on these models because, you know, I think putting them in, putting this power and, and this technology in the hands of as many developers as possible, whether they be expert data scientists or whether they're, they're actually just, you know, application developers who don't need to know anything really about the underlying technique as long as they can call an API and get back a result that helps them. You know, I think that's what's exciting for us, um, and we're excited about taking this forward and about getting other people involved. You know, so whoever's interested, we'd love to hear from you. And it also kind of fits this whole trend that I'm seeing, which is basically models are increasingly becoming commoditized in some ways, and so companies have to go back to basics and and think about data, right? So uh, how to acquire data and get good training data, but also. On the other end of it is this whole area that we've been talking about, which is model governance and model ops. And so one of the things that uh, really got my attention is just how MLflow in 10 months now has 200 companies using it, right? So, and, and that's a tool for model development, 
and there's a lot more tools that need to be built as far as uh, model operations and model governance, right? So just like we have tools that uh, recognize that data are valuable assets, right? So the data governance and data catalog tools, we're probably going to also need specialized tools for model governance and model ops. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. And, you know, it's a clear trend. You know, I, I don't think anyone would disagree or, or have a different view on that. Um, and certainly, you know, IBM is interested in all of these spaces, both from a commercial and as well as um, open source view. Uh, so, you know, ML Flow is a really interesting project. I mean, uh, I, I recall being at the at the Spark Summit where it was introduced and, and announced. Um, and I think another similar project is, is probably Kubeflow Pipelines. There's a few different projects out there that are looking to provide this Again, this idea of a, of a kind of meta framework or, or one level of abstraction higher across that machine learning data pipeline and this model pipeline. And by necessity, that has to be a framework agnostic approach. Yeah, everyone, right. everyone wants to use um, all of their different frameworks and in, in any you know, small to medium size even team, you're going to find multiple frameworks, multiple versions, um, multiple toolkits, multiple languages all that need to be supported. And you know, uh, that's what I think we're seeing here with these type of projects, MLflow, Kubeflow Pipelines, and, and others. This idea of being able to have one you know, layer of abstraction across all of those different tools, whether it's Apache Spark or Pandas on, on the data prep side, through to the various machine learning toolkits on the training side um, and, and model selection side, through to ultimately, I think we'll see much the same thing on the deployment side, you know, whether it be Docker containers, Selden, you know, any other deployment framework. Uh, as you mentioned, model governance, model ops, you know, and monitoring, I think that phase is coming. There's a few bits and pieces out there, you know, model DB, you know, we've mentioned some of the, the kind of fairness and robustness metrics that, that are possible, you know, explainability um, is all part of that. I think on that side, we, we're at the level of the set of metrics and the toolkits, but not the actual framework for how to do monitoring of a live model in a principled way, alerts, retraining, dashboards, and so on. I think there's a number of commercial offerings out there, but on the open source side, I haven't seen anything. Uh, I may be missing something, certainly, but I haven't seen anything that is comprehensive there. Likewise, for model governance, I think you're absolutely right. In the same way that, that you had data governance, you need both data governance and the model governance, right? Because you know the, the set of features that are inputs there is a critical to the model you know, model performance. So now if if your features change, if, if the, the data schema changes, that's going to lead to a complete failure down the line if you don't have you know, good governance on what the, the input data is, the lineage of the data, where is it coming from, what does is, what is the schema look like, how is that changing over time, and that particular model, you know, where is that? Where yeah, is I the mean, data it's a basic, basic things even, Nick, like give me a list of all the models we have and who has read-write privileges, right? So things like that. But I think at a high level, what we're talking about here is just the growing recognition that ML is sufficiently different from traditional software development that you need specialized tools. And so to the extent that ML is becoming important, uh, these tools are just naturally going to emerge. By the way, I want to put a plug in for a, a Rice Lab project that you guys at Code should look at, which is Ray. Uh, I don't know to what extent you've been following Ray, but it's taking off. As of today, 7,000 stars on GitHub. And it's a distributed processing framework written in C++, but the API is in Python. So among other things, reinforcement learning, very natural to do in Ray. And they do have an RL lib 
which appeals to both RL researchers, but also the just the users. And more importantly for data scientists, I don't know, Nick, if you've heard of uh, Moden, which is Pandas on Ray. So one line of code and suddenly your Pandas on your laptop is faster and it automatically scales out to a cluster. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've definitely you know, come across Ray and, and, and looked at it a, a little bit. Um, you know, the, the IBM and certainly the, the old STC and, and now the Code team has a good rela- relationship with uh, with what was the AMP Lab um, in, in Berkeley and which is and now, now Rice, Rise, Rice is now Rise Lab. Uh, so you know, we, we've looked at Ray quite a lot, and um, if I recall, the data store, the the kind of key value data store, was pulled into Apache Arrow as as part of that project, which is. Yeah, so, so that's really great to see that kind of standardization happening. And, and I, I have come across the, the pandas on Ray, um, at least looked at, at a few of the, the code examples, at least, and it looks pretty, pretty interesting. So I think that that's a really kind of interesting space. You know, is this, is the emergence of the, of a few different projects looking at, um, you know, faster and more distributed data frames and so more scalable data frames. So including, you know, pandas on Ray, uh, Dask, you know, the NVIDIA Rapids projects. Looking you know, at effectively pandas on GPU, you know, I think, think there's some pretty interesting projects that are that are all being worked on in this space of of accelerating the, the tools that data scientists are already using, um, and effectively trying to keep keep those tools and APIs the same. Keep it, you know, even if who knows how to use pandas, um, but give them give them the scalability that they may be needing as as the you know the data volumes that they're working with are growing significantly. This has been great. So I, I've wanted you on this podcast, obviously, because uh, we sh- I should have had you a while back. But also, I think that uh, I also wanted people to know about all these cool projects coming out of IBM Open Source that a lot of uh, listeners may not be aware of. So thank you, Nick. Yeah, thank you, Ben. I mean, it's it's a it's a huge honor and uh, uh, to be on the on the show, and uh, you know, really appreciate it. And as you said, um, you know. I think many many folks may, out there may not know about some of these open source projects in this space that are coming out of IBM Research and our Code A team. And somewhat sadly, IBM is not always associated in the in the minds of of uh, the, those developers, data scientists, and so on with open source. But we have a long um, and rich and proud history in in open source from you know Java through to Linux through to um, Kubernetes, uh, Node.js, Spark. And now, you know, the, the, the deep learning and, and machine learning space and, and model ops, AI ops space and trusted AI, these are all key for, for our, both our business and our open source teams. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really great to have the opportunity to talk about some of, some of the things that we're doing and pushing out there into the community. Uh, so appreciate the, uh, the opportunity. All right, Nick. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. You can follow Nick Pentrip on Twitter at MLNick. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud or Spotify and never miss an episode.